Abolition. Abolition. The actions of slave rebels and runaways, freedom petitioners and claimants did not lie outside of, but shaped abolition and its goals. For example, I found the British Quaker abolitionist Elizabeth Herrick's call for immediate abolition in 1824, which most historians are aware of. It's the first call for immediate abolition of slavery. Uh, Herrick, in this pamphlet, coupled her call for immediate abolition with a strong defense of the Demerara Slave Rebellion that had taken just a year, taken place just a year prior. So as most abolitionists understood, the story of abolition must begin with the struggles of the enslaved. And this is particularly true of something like the Haitian Revolution, uh, whose impact uh, is on the movement to abolish slavery has not really been appreciated. Um, we have many histories of the Haitian Revolution, uh, and we are aware of the tragic history uh, of the island, sort of made worse by um, the, the policies of uh, former colonizers. Uh, but we're really not aware of how profound its impact was on the movement to abolish slavery, how, if in fact, it was the first instance of immediate, uncompensated, that is, to slaveholders, uh, abolition. So the connection between slave resistance and abolition in the United States was proximate and continuous. It gave abolition its most enduring issue, the fugitive slave controversy, and provided the movement with its most dynamic exponents, fugitive slave abolitionists. We are all aware of Frederick Douglass, but of course there were many men and women like Douglass who wrote their narratives, and their narratives in a way constituted the literature of the abolition movement, uh, and they also became very effective critics of pro-slavery ideology. Slaveholders found it difficult to dismiss former slaves as uh, northern abolitionists who knew nothing about slavery and who were simply armchair philosophers. In fact, fugitive slaves, through their experiences, uh, could uh, oppose and could criticize and present a very alternative picture of slavery for a much broader audience uh, than that that slaveholders uh, wanted to propagate, that they were benevolent and paternalistic and took care of their slaves. So even after bitter divisions sundered the abolition movement, nothing brought all abolitionists together more readily than the fugitive slaves' desperate bid for freedom. Fugitive slaves also led some abolitionists to justify revolutionary resistance to slavery. Some historians have declared black resistance to enslavement passé, but it was central to the abolition movement. To leave the enslaved out of abolition is to profoundly miss the part that African Americans have played in shaping the protest traditions of American democracy. Slave resistance revolutionized abolitionist discourse and practice and moved abolition into northern state and courthouses. Northern personal liberty laws and attempts to grant fugitives trial by jury and prevent the kidnapping of free blacks into slavery challenged the extraterritoriality of Southern slave codes mandated by the federal fugitive slave laws.
Chicago, we have what? Say we have what? I can't hear y'all. We have what? We living in a different time now. The mass ain't too fond of because black faces look too proud now. The youth, we ain't for nothing. We bout that action. Ain't nothing to smile about when they kill us like animals and eat burgers to pass the time now. And hey, it ain't near as here we at. Ain't no justice system. This system ain't got justice. It ain't in their heart. It ain't in their heart to give. It ain't no secret no more, bro. They showing us who they is. And look, they hate black power. They hate black strength. And hey, they hate black love. They hate blackness. And we sun-kissed. Wrapped in black, the most highest gift is melanin we chosen. Don't hate, look, you just one picture, no. They coming at us from different angles to pick us off. Smile and shake your hand, thinking goofy niggas, I sent you off. Black pastors endorsing Donald Trump, damn, they dropped the ball. Never trust your enemies, peep game. Shout out Jamal Bryan for the courageous act. A few good men are cool, I can play with that. But look, the beauty of being born in this generation is that we ready to die. We ain't afraid of that, ain't made like that. Shout out Mizzou. It's power in our unity, my brother showed and proved. You mess with these racist money, that's conflicting with they moves. And cause y'all didn't play, they was missing out on loot, made the president step down. Don't you see what we can do like? (laughs) Now ain't that something? And we was downtown with our sisters and brothers. We was on the mag mile so they wouldn't buy nothing. Black Friday, we shut it down. They thought we was bluffing, thought we was bluffing. Hey, it's our time on my soul, that's on the real. Know that they hate it, but it is what it is. Our people suffered under y'all 400 years. So I could give a damn about y'all being in y'all feelings. Look, much love to all the brothers out here fighting for the cause. Much love to all the queens out here fighting against the odds. We from Chicago, but this for revolutionaries abroad. It's not a thing that we do together that they can stop. GC. You know, you know. But now this ain't the type of generation. It's that generation that's gonna get it done. We was born for the day and they silly. We the same children that's gonna have you running. It's something about us, I know you know this. Master can't stop us, he can't control us. They say that we rebels and problem children. Cause we just won't listen to Uncle Ruckus. Miss me with that shit. We train to go like a militia. We on a mission. Moving around if you not with it. This business ain't got no hard feelings. You know, you know. I just ain't got no time. But pussy can't scatter my vision and think I'm wild. Feelings is like insanity to a coward. Yeah, my teacher, he taught me about you. I'm so ready for this venture. I sign up for this red description. They say you know you probably die, right? I said put me on the list. You don't scared of my power. When you hate that, you don't like that. Like the hell with my power. And that top spot that you sitting in, yeah, we know that's ours. So we young now, yeah, we won't get you. That's wrong. That's ours. Oh, the power that we sitting on. A power we've been sleeping on. You knew we had it all along. You just heard Professor Manisha Sinha, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, and that was followed up by The Golden Child, It's Our Time. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. We're also streaming live in the Clubhouse app on Abolition Today. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Brother Yusuf. And as usual, I'm here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina. Let's get into it. So last week was our two-year anniversary. 
Uh, we recap some of the highlights of the broadcast since our inception. So anyone that missed that, you can uh, check us out, Abolition Today, on all the streaming platforms. So this week, we're going into something really special. So you heard a taste of uh, Dr. Sinha's work, or Professor Sinha's work and research a few weeks ago during our season three episode, episode uh, season three episode eight, which was Runaway Slave Syndrome. Well, this week we're joined live by Professor Manisha Sinha, who is the James L. and Shirley A. Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut and a leading authority on the history of slavery and abolition and the Civil War and Reconstruction. As always, we'll have wonderful music mixes, and we'll bring the words of the abolitionist ancestors back to life for a new generation in our Bridging the Gap segment. So before we start, Max, tell us what you think of the opening track, and how's your week been? <laughs> um, the opening track, of course, Professor Cena's work speaks for itself, uh, but mm-hmm. I really was uh, drawn to the fact that she was pointing out about how uh, the revolutionaries really were the key element in driving the abolitionist movement. Um, and, it, you know, oftentimes those voices are not included in the overall conversation about who really was behind the efforts of slavery abolition. And, of course, uh, the music, Brother Golden Child, spelled G-O-A-L and C-H-Y-L-D. Um, I just found him uh, on YouTube. And I was amazed at the work the brothers put now. So today, we're going to play three of his tracks. Uh, he is exactly the type of person that uh, Professor is speaking of, <laughs> at least on a musical level, you know, a little bit right, more militant right. than most, but right on point for everything that he's saying. And it all fits into uh, what we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, so they, there is that. And as far as the week has been concerned, man, it has been uh, pretty powerful. California's ACA3 bill has passed through the House. Uh, Now it's only going to go to the Senate, and it'll be on the ballot for 2022, where California joins the rest of these states that are ending slavery and involuntary servitude in their constitutions, just removing that completely and making it illegal. So California did that. And also, yeah, that's huge. That's really big. And also, uh, the governor of Alabama <clears throat> signed the bill that will put uh, ending slavery in Alabama on the ballot. <laughs> so that goes on the ballot for 2022 uh, in Alabama, where their exception clause will be removed. Uh, and it's being described as racist language, which it is. <laughs> you know, legalized slavery is certainly racist language, especially when it's race-based, as we know it is in places like Alabama. So those are two huge victories that we've accomplished just in the past couple of days here uh, with the Abolish Slavery National Network and abolitionists all across the country. And then, uh, of course, there's some new news that came out that I find very intriguing, and I'm trying to get involved in it. And that's where Jay Prince is calling on Drake and Kanye West and Nicki Minaj mm-hmm. and many of the top stars in hip-hop to boycott the Grammys, do an event on the very same day, uh, and the reasoning that they want to do this is because of the 13th Amendment Exception Clause. Jay Prince broke it down on Twitter uh, about how the Exception Clause allows for legalized slavery, and he compared it to the music industry, you know, and the mentality that they have. So I'm very mm-hmm. fired up about that possibility. That could expose tens or hundreds of millions of people uh, to the idea of these ex- ex- exception clauses. 
as you know, that poll Absolutely. we did with Worth Rises a few months ago showed that only 22% of Americans know there's even ex- an exception clause in the 13th Amendment. Like, most people don't even know it, <laughs> let alone that it's right. being exploited or has been exploited. And I guess the round off the week was what you went, uh, got involved with. Uh, you were recently called on to participate in an event. Uh, is it called the Black Effect? Uh, the Black the Effect, Black I Effect. Yes, and you were invited to come in and speak about abolition. And I think that you were the star of all of those days. Like, you was the one, really, that brought it home and <laughs> connected everything together. Yusuf? Well, I appreciate that. That means the world's coming from you. <laughs> you know, so I, I definitely appreciate that. And, yes, I, I'd say, yes, that was the highlight of the week for me, just uh, being able to speak that night. Just the topics alone, you know, with the first speaker speaking on uh, criminal justice and the second one speaking on political prisoners, and then for me being able to cap it off, speaking about the abolition movement, bringing them through the history as to, one, correcting the fallacy that the 13th Amendment ended slavery and then bringing it all the way to present times, showing how not only does slavery still exist, but the, the work that the ASNN and other abolitionists are out here doing to hopefully one day in our lifetime bring forth the end to, to slavery as we know it. So great week we had. And if you have nothing else, Max, I would really love to bring in our guests. Well, I do want to say one more if thing you're ready? in regards to, sure. yeah, there's one more thing that I want to add to that, just so people know what we're talking about. At this date uh, right now, we have effectively – removed exception clauses from three states, Colorado, Utah, and Nebraska, making it a total of four because Rhode Island had already done so. They were the only ones that done, had did it. And now we've got five states on the ballot for this year. And that's just for 2022. It could be as many as eight before we've gotten to the uh, November. And then in 23, we've got even more states already lined up. So it is a magical period right now, and we're doing historical epic. With that being said, I am so looking forward to our guest today. So go ahead and let's bring her in. Absolutely. So Professor Manisha Sinha was born in India and received her Ph.D. from Columbia University, where her dissertation was nominated for the Bancroft Prize. She's the author of The Counter-Revolution of Slavery, Politics and Ideology in Antebellum, South Carolina, which was named one of the 10 best books on slavery in Politico in 2015 and recently featured in the New York Times' 1619 Project. Her multiple award-winning second monograph, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, was long listed for the National Book Award for Nonfiction. It was named Editor's Choice in the New York Times Book Review, Book of the Week by Times Higher Education, to coincide with this UK publication and one of the three great history books of 2016 in Bloomberg News. She is the recipient of numerous fellowships and has written for and appeared on every media platform imaginable in the U.S. and internationally. If I were to read all of her accolades, we'd run out of time <laughs> to even bring her on. So Abolition Today is pleased and honored to welcome Professor Manisha Sinha to the show. Welcome to the yes. show with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, Professor Manisha Sinha. Thank you so much for having me, Yusuf and Max. 
<laughs> like I said, I'm very excited about today. You know, we had some interaction previously, uh, and we've shared some information uh, back and forth. So I, I was really uh, looking forward to hearing some of the things uh, that you might have to say. And I got some good questions for you lined up. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I've listened to so many of your videos and uh, lectures and realized the first time I became aware of you was in 2016, and you did a lecture in regards to the book uh, about South Carolina. And uh, we even used a part of that in one of our programs back uh, a couple years ago. So I've known about you for a while, and I've been very excited to uh, finally get the chance to bring you on to the program and speak with you in a conversational way, Uh, not so much as a lecture, but just us talking about abolition amongst abolitionists. So uh, welcome once again. Uh, let's start out right from the Thank beginning. Thank you so much. I have a question that is burning in my head. Are you or do you consider yourself a slavery abolitionist? Because I know you identify as an abolitionist, but do you also identify as a slavery abolitionist? That's a great question. You know, I always thought of myself um, as a historian of abolition, really. Um, you know, that is what I do um, rather than, you know, full full out activism, even though I support causes um, that are linked to uh, prison abolition and, and other kinds of causes that are that are present today. Um, but yes, I, I thought of myself as a historian of the abolition movement uh, against enslavement of black people, uh, and then looking at the sort of long afterlives of slavery, as as you have mentioned uh, in your opening here, um, and looking at the ways in which um, even after emancipation, uh, people looked for ways to um, to to sort of circumscribe black freedom. And, and one of the ways they did that was to weaponize the criminal exception clause of the 13th Amendment um, to um, literally criminalize blackness. Uh, and you have um, all sorts of ways in which, uh, in the South particularly, you have the emergence of uh, convict lease, labor systems, debt peonage, um, you know, which historians have called worse than slavery, slavery by another name. Um, these sort of systems that grew out of, uh, even, you know, as as you know, there were instances of, of convict lease even before the Civil War, especially with enslaved people. But, but it really takes off in the South after emancipation. Um, and, you know, there were people who um, actually warned against this, when the criminal exception was adopted in the 13th Amendment uh, by Lyman Trumbull, a moderate Republican politician, he simply lifted the words from the Northwest Ordinance of 1784 uh, that had abolished slavery in the Northwest Territories with the criminal exception. Um, and, And the person who did that was Charles Sumner, a radical Republican who was really associated with the abolition movement. He wanted a 13th Amendment that would be that would have no such exception because he knew that former slaveholders would uh were men of bad bad faith and that they would use that um to 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 sort of restrict black freedom so 
Um, you know, it's, it's a long debate, uh, and, and we all know what happens in history uh, in the South and then in our own times, um, what Michelle Alexander has called the new Jim Crow, you know, mass incarceration and all kinds of racist differentials when it comes to the application of criminal law. Um, there have been ways in which uh, black people have been treated by law enforcement today and in the law, uh, which quite clearly, um, you know, I think uh, would count as what the 13th Amendment called badges of servitude. Um, so, uh, you know, the 13th Amendment is, is a mixed bag. We can, you know, take uh, the, the sort of bad faith use of it by uh, by people who try to use it to undo black emancipation. Uh, but there are parts of it that gives Congress the authority to, to pass laws to undo these badges of servitude, uh, which is what I think mass incarceration is uh, today for black people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I always thought of myself as more of a historian. I really talked more about the, the 19th century movement against slavery, which I argued uh, was, was led by African-Americans themselves. Um, and um, it's heartening to see modern-day activists, uh, you know, learn some things from, from the older generation of abolitionists and even just adopt those terms like abolition and abolition democracy uh, for their causes. Well, that's certainly what we're doing. Uh, we feel like we are walking in the footsteps of our ancestors and finishing the jobs that they gave their life to, to accomplish, but it was never quite finished, uh, as you're well aware. As you said, the transfer mm -hmm. of ownership went from the individual being able to own people to the state managing it through the prison system and weaponizing the criminal justice system, as well as things like black codes and pig laws and even Jim Crow laws. We talk a lot about Jim Crow laws, but we don't talk enough about what happens if you broke those laws, um, which ended up putting you in the chain gang or convict leasing where you were often worked to death. Um, and we're also very convinced based on the facts that this is not something that happened by mistake. It was something that was intentional. And then uh, it was refined over the years. Uh, we traced the 13th Amendment all the way back to 1777, Vermont. They were the first state to put it in their constitution. And then after that came the Northwest Ordinance, and it was quickly followed by Ohio, who used it, and then Oregon, uh, and then Alabama, you and I discussed that earlier, 1861. You were like, I don't think Alabama abolished slavery before the 13th Amendment. But, yeah, they had this exception clause in 1861 in their constitution, which is pretty amazing. But it also shows that they had an intention to use it. And the GDP of the state of Alabama uh, reflects that because in the uh, prior to the Civil War, I think like 80% of their income was coming in from slavery. And then by the 1890s, nearly that much was coming in from convict leasing. So, yeah, we, we've seen right, right. how this has been set up intentionally. Even Lincoln, of which you were a part of the film's uh, production, I believe, uh, as an advisor, right, on the issue of abolition, uh, even Lincoln was involved in uh, at least three different uh, exception clauses, uh, including the 13th Amendment. So prior to that, he was involved in 
1862, uh, the 1862 Act for the Release of Certain Persons held the service, service, which also had an exception clause that he was fully aware of. And he was a supporter, and correct me if I'm wrong, he was a supporter of the Corwin Amendment, actually writing to Southern governors and asking them to support that amendment. Am I incorrect in that? Well, you know, the criminal exception clause, as you pointed out, was there in all uh, sort of emancipation statutes and including in the state constitution of Vermont. And, um, you know, people have always tried to figure out where does this come from? Where does English, you know, where does this criminal exception idea come from uh, when you have laws uh, that promulgate emancipation, that end slavery, uh, chattel slavery? Uh, and, um, you know, historians have puzzled over this, uh, and I think part of it is Anglo-American jurisprudence. Um, you know, I think it comes from English common law and English laws uh, that always, um, when they gave rights, had this sort of caveat that if you are lawfully committed, convicted of a crime, you can be incarcerated. And then it just gets recycled uh, right up to the 13th Amendment as a virtually pro forma, right, uh, in all these uh, emancipation laws. But if you think about it, it has a lot to do with control of labor uh, and, and in the working poor. Um, so in England, in the 16th century, they are already uh, proposing laws um, to incarcerate poor people into workhouses. Uh, there's even a law that is proposed in the English Parliament to actually enslave uh, the poor. And um, what was seen as, you know, vagrants and as, you know, just just so that you could commandeer their labor. Uh, and if you think of the convict lease labor system, yeah, even before the Civil War in Alabama and Kentucky, they were using convict labor. That didn't really become the main thing because, of course, you had legal slavery. So they, they didn't need uh, an elaborate system of convict lease labor. This develops really post-emancipation in the South, where they use the criminal exception of the 13th Amendment to get around it. And the main goal here is to commandeer black labor the way they did under slavery without paying for it. Uh, and you are right. I mean, the, 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 the entire convict lease labor was a brutally oppressive, um, virtually slave labor system in which uh, people were incarcerated for trumped-up charges. You mentioned the black codes under the Andrew Johnson governments that were, of course, then um, later on overthrown during Reconstruction. But when Reconstruction is overthrown and you have Jim Crow, those laws come right back in. Uh, and black people are sometimes imprisoned for trumped-up charges uh, for all kinds of reasons uh, that could be trivial uh, and even made up crimes so that uh, planters, um, uh, industries could have access to their labor. Uh, and this grew into this sort of brutal system uh, of convict lease labor, as you mentioned. Um, of course, with Lincoln, it's important to know that Lincoln was not an abolitionist. He was an anti-slavery politician who, before the war, was always kind of balancing his genuine anti-slavery scruples with his loyalty to the union with slaveholders uh, and to the Constitution. 
um, once you have the secession crisis, and of course Alabama does not abolish slavery in 1861, it secedes from the Union then, but when you have the secession crisis in the winter of 1860-1861, you have people like uh, Lincoln being approached, he is the newly elected president, and these deep south states secede rather than have what they called a black Republican or a Republican elected on an anti-slavery platform ascend to the presidency. So they dispute the presidential elections. Sounds familiar? Um, <laughs> but, you know, when they do that, uh, they, there are all these schemes for compromise so that the southern states don't leave the Union. And one of the compromises was, as you pointed out, the original 13th Amendment, which is named after Thomas Corwin from Ohio. Uh, And he proposed an amendment to the Constitution that basically said that slavery in the southern states would not be touched uh, and it would be permanent. uh, And that, in fact, uh, you um, have... um, I'm sorry for the interruption. That was my son. Uh, but in any case, um, you know, that, that you would not be able to have uh, any uh, any government or any amendment to the Constitution that would get rid of slavery in the southern states, that only they would have the power to end slavery by themselves. Um, so this was an amendment that Lincoln actually accepted, and so did the Republican Party, because at that point, they are really more concerned about putting the union with the slave states back together. Uh, but of course, this amendment does not appease southern slaveholders. What they want is for Lincoln to completely repudiate even the sort of minimal anti-slavery position that the Republican Party is taking then, which is um, that slavery should not expand into federal territories. And that's something that Lincoln refuses to compromise on. He says, then, you know, I would be compromising on the platform that I was elected on. Um, And, of course, we know the whole story. You know, the Confederacy fires the first shot. You have four more border, upper south states seceding, joining the Confederacy. Um, And then, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation during the war and Uh, ending with the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865, Um, the 13th Amendment that we know that was actually passed that abolished slavery, uh, but with that criminal exception. Uh, But I think it's important to note that the people who uh, put the 13th Amendment together, especially Margaret like Trumbull, uh, they were, you know, maybe naive, but they did not imagine that the South would completely subvert its aim by developing this sort of elaborate convict lease labor system uh, during the Jim Crow era, which of course they did. Um, And we are still living with those long legacies, right? We are still living with those legacies of the criminalization of blackness, of the incarceration of black people, differential treatment by law enforcement, uh, criminal justice system. Uh, And I think that's what modern day activists like you are concerned about, and I think any decent American citizen should be concerned about. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I had a couple of questions I want to ask, but I, I want to give an opportunity, Brother Yusuf, if you had any uh, questions or comments. You can go on for now, Max. I'll, I'll defer right. to you for the moment. You uh, mentioned earlier that there were some people who spoke about the exceptional clause of the 13th Amendment while it was going on. 
Uh, in all of my research, right. I've only found three so far. Uh, if you could tell me more, I'd appreciate it. I know that Charles Sumter okay. uh, did it, and he was beaten okay. in the Congress that, uh, because of that, right? They caned him. Uh, right. Yeah. And then also <laughs> right. the abolitionist William Powell spoke about it, and then finally Frederick Douglass warned mm-hmm. about it, specifically mm-hmm. when William Lloyd Garrison said he wanted to dissolve the anti-slavery society. And then he talked about the 13th right. Amendment because that was the reason why they wanted to dissolve it. But I hadn't heard of anyone else really speaking of it. Was there others? So as far as the 13th Amendment is concerned, um, the only person in Congress who warned against that criminal exception clause was Charles Sumner, who was a radical Republican from Massachusetts, a, a very close ally and friend of Frederick Douglass, very closely associated with the abolition movement, including with William Lloyd Garrison and uh, Wendell Phillips. Uh, he was really uh, emerging out of the abolitionist milieu in, in, in Massachusetts. Uh, and he wanted a much more universal blanket statement of freedom that he got from you know, French ideas about universal liberty. Um, but, you know, the, the, the eventual shape of the, of the amendment did not have his wording. Uh, there were many proposals for the 13th Amendment, and his was one that did not have the criminal exception. Everyone else just kept following that English Anglo-American jurisprudence, that typical, you know, following tradition and custom, um, you know, and just simply putting in the criminal exception. Uh, and of course, you know, um, abolitionists like Garrison had already noticed the differential um, uh, uh, execution of laws, even in the North, um, when they joined societies against capital punishment. Uh, they noted that uh, black people were far more subject to death penalty, to incarceration than whites. So they had already noticed that abolitionists uh, in in antebellum America, in the North, in the free states. Um, so I think uh, they perhaps would have liked Sumner's amendment, which was just this blanket grant of emancipation with no exception, uh, not even uh, if you are convicted of a crime. Um, and so I think what happens with the passage of the 13th Amendment is that William Lloyd Garrison, who had always opposed entering politics uh, because he thought abolitionists should be agitators and that politics was the realm of compromise, uh, felt that his work was done. He felt that the main action now was not with the abolition movement, it was with the Republican Party. Um, And Wendell Phillips and Frederick Douglass disagreed with him. Uh, They said, no, the American Anti-Slavery Society should continue to exist uh, for as long as black people did not have the right to vote and equal citizenship in this country, the abolitionist project would not be done. And that, in fact, was the original abolition aim, um, you know, which was when the American Anti-Slavery Society was founded in 1833, founded not just to end slavery, but it is also part of its platform, equal black citizenship, black equality. Um, and so, so Garrison loses. He resigns as president. Wendell Phillips is elected president of the American Anti-Slavery Society. And in 1870, when the 15th Amendment was passed that gave black men the right to vote, 
Frederick Douglass and when Wendell Phillips say, well, okay, now our, our goals are achieved, that now we should disband the society. They could not have foreseen that after so many federal laws, three constitutional amendments, that in fact, Southerners who were always unreconstructed, Southern white elites, particularly uh, former Confederates, would manage to go around these amendments and overthrow these amendments. So they argue, let us disband the society. There's still some radicals like Stephen Foster who tell Douglas at that time in 1870 that no, let's not disband the society now unless land is redistributed amongst black people. Another thing that most abolitionists and most radical Republicans supported, but that moderates and conservatives did not. Um, they said we should continue the society, but they lose the battle. Uh, at that point, Phillips and Douglas get their way, and the American Anti-Slavery Society is disbanded. And for all purposes, the abolition movement as a formal movement with an organization ends. You still have, of course, abolitionists like Douglas, who lives right up to 1895 and who actually sees the fall of Reconstruction, who continue to agitate for black rights. Um, but what you don't have is that kind of organizational, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, movement going forth uh, after the 18, after 1870, um, and and really after the fall of Reconstruction black activists realized that they need a new abolition movement, right? They need to to contest Jim Crow, to contest debt peonage, to contest um, convict lease labor systems, to convest, contest disfranchisement of black men, uh, again, completely going around the 15th Amendment uh, by using all kinds of legal chicanery and tricks to take away the right to vote from black men. Um, so they realize that you need a new abolitionist movement and you can see already, um, you know, activists like T. Thomas Fortune, William Monroe Trotter, um, arguing that we need a new movement. And uh, of course you have W.E.B. Du Bois at this point too, and they form the Niagara movement, the Afro-American uh, Council, the Afro-American League, all these different black organizations. Eventually the NAACP is founded and it becomes the sort of new vehicle, the organization vehicle of, um, for black rights. Uh, and they are drawing attention to convict lease labor in the South. They're drawing attention to racial terror and violence and the epidemic, the barbaric epidemic of lynching in the South, in the so-called New South. Um, and they continue the work. So I think this, this abolitionist project, as I argue in my book, you know, never really ends because as long as we continue to deal with uh, these sort of discrepancies, racial discrepancies, as long as we still deal with the criminalization of blackness, police brutality, differentials in law enforcement, differentials in the criminal justice system, um, you know, the abolitionist work is really not over because in the end, it was always for... Uh, complete freedom and, and complete black equality. Uh, yeah, that, that was something I learned from Frederick Douglass when uh, after the alleged abolition of slavery, he realized, like you said, there was still so much work to do and that his voice was needed. Um, and I believe I heard you at one time, you said that the abolitionists 
were the words were wordsmiths. Uh, and I, I, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you greatly, but I disagree in one word, the word were, because I'm here and I'm a slavery abolitionist and I'm also a spoken <laughs> word artist. So we're still here. <laughs> and yes. We're still wordsmiths. <laughs> um, That's wonderful. That's great. I'm glad to see the abolitionist legacy living on. Absolutely. Um, You know, I follow a lot of breadcrumbs in regards to this 13th Amendment so that I could better understand uh, how it came about, what the intentions are, things like that, who was involved. Um, One of the things that stood out for me more than others was Lincoln's interaction with Alexander Stevens and the letter that he wrote in December of 1860 to him. Um, Because Mm -hmm. I know what I know, there were some things that were said that stand out for me. Are you familiar with that letter by any chance? Yes, I am, because you see, they were both Whigs before you had the emergence of the anti-slavery Republican Party in the 1850s. Uh, in the second party system, you had the Democrats versus the Whigs, and Lincoln was a Northern Whig, Alexander Stevens was the Southern Whig, um, Georgia is going is seceding, and, you know, Lincoln is writing to him as a former colleague in the Whig Party. And mm-hmm. I think it is in that letter that he tells Stevens, um, you think slavery is right and ought to be extended, and we mm-hmm. think slavery is wrong and mm-hmm. ought not to be extended, and there is the rub. Um, yes, that, that was, was the one. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Was, uh, I had to think for a while on the choice of words. It ought to be restricted, mm-hmm. not abolished, mm-hmm. but restricted. And it only, uh, after more research, I realized what he was talking about was basically convict leasing, which had already been used as far back as 1777 with the European indentured servants and then exploited in places like Alabama and uh, and other states that used the convict leasing. Uh, Like in 18, I believe it was 1866, uh, around September or so, that Texas started using Mm -hmm. convict leasing right after General Granger showed up to say that everybody was free. They immediately went into convict leasing. So it dawned on me that, yes, Lincoln was very much aware of this alternative, and it was a compromise to be offered. Uh, We don't want you to own people Uh, anymore, but you can't do it through the prison. I think that actually I would disagree there. I don't think he's referring to convict leaves at all there. He's referring to the non-extension of slavery. He's a restrictionist in the sense he's telling Alexander Stevens or reassuring him that the new new Republican Party, this, this anti-slavery party, is not going to interfere in slavery in the southern states. They're only for the restriction or the non-extension of slavery into the federal territories. Now, Geographical what happens with, you know, the convict leave system immediately after emancipation? Remember that Lincoln is assassinated, and the person who becomes president mm-hmm. then is Andrew Johnson, who has to be one of the worst presidents in U.S. history. Uh, and Andrew Johnson is from Tennessee. Uh, he was a war Democrat. He stayed in the Union when his state seceded. He's put in a sort of unity ticket, the Union Party ticket, which is really the Republican ticket, as the vice president. Uh, and so he, you know, is made president by an assassin's bullet. Um, and and remember, of course, that Lincoln is assassinated because just before he died, he endo- he becomes the first American president to sort of endorse black citizenship and black male voting. 
and so when he is killed and Johnson becomes president, he left he issues these proclamations and tells Southerners, Southern white elites basically, that you can come back into the Union uh, as long as you accept the thirteenth amendment, the end of slavery. And immediately former Confederates come into power in places like Texas, all over the South in Alabama, and between eighteen sixty five and the summer of eighteen sixty six they start passing these black codes, um, which are, you know, not convict least so much, but they are criminalizing black freedom and restricting black freedom to as close a state of slavery as possible. So these black codes have, you know, vagrancy laws. They have apprenticeship laws uh, where people could literally kidnap black children and, and force them to work. Or they had these... Um, uh, strange restrictions for black people that they could not own property in cities or they had to, you know, uh, follow certain kinds of racial customs. I mean, it was egregious. And it mm. led to a reaction in the North, and it led to a reaction amongst the Republicans uh, who saw that Johnson was molly coddling former slaveholders and former Confederates and letting them get away with murder, literally. Um, and so that is when the Republican Party um, passes uh, the Freedmen's Bureau Act and the Civil Rights Act that gave this, the first federal Civil Rights Act that gave black people certain civil protections against these egregious black codes that are being passed in states like Alabama. Um, and they overthrow these governments eventually. They, they remand these states back under military rule. Um, and they demand that southern states hold new constitutional conventions, elect new state governments based on black male voting. And this is the start of Reconstruction. Um, and they passed the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law, due process of law, all those guarantees that, you know, if you think about what happens in Jim Crow, they are constantly overthrowing the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments and basically and getting away with it. With legal, over and over, with legal technicalities. Um, and, and that's why it shows, I think, you know, the struggle for black freedom and rights is an ongoing one because you think you won these victories, but then there is a backlash and a reaction. So the black codes are overthrown. You have reconstruction. But by the end of the 1870s, when federal troops are withdrawn from the South, you have complete racist terror in the South, uh, new laws, Jim Crow laws being passed uh, that disfranchise black people, develop systems like convict leaf labor. And so then again, there's another long struggle against that. And, you know, with the Civil Rights Movement, we get the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and then you have a backlash against that again. Um, but this, you know, differential, you know, this differential in the application of criminal law to sort of criminalize black freedom and criminalize blackness, I think that's been really a troublesome thing in U.S. history because mm -hmm. that's something that we still live with today. You know, that's something, you know, we know uh, with the movement for black lives that, you know, this is an ongoing struggle. This is not something that has disappeared. Uh, and this is what I would call the long afterlife of slavery in this country. You see it in, in culture, you see it in politics, you see it in criminal law, you see it in, 
it, it vast wealth gaps uh, created by um, by law uh, and by systems um, that have that have held black people down in this country for so long. Um, and I think that is the challenge of our generation, really, to to address those those inequalities that that persist and that you know those differentials that continue to exist. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think all of you are doing really important work in terms of constantly drawing attention to this. Um, the fact that you know um, that that you have you know scholars also who are writing about this increasingly now. There's there's sort of a real focus on this. I think by by um, scholars, uh, my my own one of my own um, colleagues at UConn, Melanie Newport, is uh, coming up with a new book in which she really examines the Chicago prison system and she shows the ways in which um, it is used to really curtail Black freedom and to to treat people in ways that you know, really show those those sort of racist systems at work. I remember Frederick Douglass in that speech about the 13th Amendment and the dissolvement of the anti-slavery society was uh, saying that he predicted that the South would legislate against blacks, <clears throat> excuse me, with more stringency because of the fact that they helped to defeat them. And they certainly did that. Mm -hmm. But I think a a big Mm -hmm. change occurred around 1980. Uh, As you already know, we have the largest prison population Mm -hmm. that's ever existed Mm -hmm. in the history of humanity. But it really exploded Mm -hmm. then with the Reagan era uh, when they started Mm -hmm. bringing in more for-profit prison industries. Uh, And Mm -hmm. then we saw a new phenomenon that went beyond prison labor. Of course, prison labor was still being used. Here in South Carolina, we were making Victoria's Secrets in women's prisons at 28 cents an hour, which is basically what? Convict leasing, right? Uh, they were still doing oh that, even though it was supposed yeah. to be abolished. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it really ex- exploded with what we call warehousing bodies for profit and control. So you didn't even need them mm-hmm. to work anymore. You just stuck them in a cage mm-hmm. and you would collect X amount uh, of money for doing so. And we see the excess of that in places like Rikers Island right now where to incarcerate mm-hmm. someone in that jail is $356,000 a year. That's not a problem. That's a bounty on people's heads. It's an incentive to go right. get more people. Uh, so what are your thoughts exactly. on current warehousing of bodies? That's a, that's a great question. You know, I'm not so much of a, an expert on the thing, but I, but I do read, um, you know, uh, these prisons for profit, and the way they exploit the prisoners, you know, these $10 phone calls for like one minute uh, mm-hmm. and uh, these companies that uh, do this, that literally uh, feed off um, uh, exploited in prison populations using their labor, as you mentioned. You know, we don't have the old chain gangs anymore, uh, but now we have prison labor being used. I was just told recently that in a state as north as Maine, um, they found that there were some prisons that were using prison labor uh, to construct furniture, to do furniture work. And and how much do you think these people are being paid or not being paid at all, right? I think they were paying them like a dollar or something. I mean, forget minimum wage, uh, which is still below the poverty line. So, yes, you're right. I mean, it, you know, capitalism sometimes works that way where they try to make money off the most exploited 
sections of our society. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and you can really see this um, with um, these these systems that have grown throughout the, the United States. Um, no other country has it. Professor Sina, uh, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, you are. Okay. Uh, uh, Professor Sina, uh, I would love to talk to you forever on this issue because there's so much to learn from you, and I right. really appreciate your time. But I know that we do have to let you go at 8 p.m. Uh, so what I want to do is give you, uh, you an opportunity to speak to our audience about anything that you want to speak about. Uh, plug your book, of course. We're sharing it on our website. So if you're listening right now, you can go to Abolition Today on Facebook and pick up a book. I purchased both today, so I won't get them for a week, but I purchased them both today. <laughs> but feel free to speak to our audience. We have a well-educated audience, and they are slavery abolitionists, and they've been following our work for years. So is there anything you'd like to share with them? Yes. Uh, thank you so much, first of all, Max, for having me and for for the important work that you all are doing in, in sort of continuing um, to draw attention and battle against these very kind of entrenched um, oppressions in this, in this country. Um, my only message as a historian, really, as a scholar of abolition, is that, you know, often when we look at the histories of slavery and abolition, we tend to emphasize the oppression, uh, the awful conditions, um, the criminalization, the making people into fugitives, um, the dehumanization that is involved in um, in in these uh, you know uh, prison labor, prisons for profit, um, and earlier on under slavery, under chattel slavery itself, that 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 tried to make human beings into commodities, right, to be sold and bought. Um, and I think it's important for us also to learn the history of the resistance against it, uh, the black resistance against it, uh, especially the abolitionist movement. Uh, African-Americans and their allies have always struggled against this. They were never passive uh, against all these brutalities that was done to them. And I think we can find some sort of inspiration from that. Uh, it is true that, you know, even within the abolition movement, there were many different views about tactics, about, uh, you know, uh, about uh, ideas, uh, and they disagreed with each other on women's rights, on, on whether to enter politics or not, on uh, whether to support Lincoln and the Republican Party uh, at different place times or not. Um, but, and, you know, in the end, I think what is important for us to learn is is those also those inspirational stories of black resistance because i think that is the only way that we can continue to combat inequalities today uh the only way that you could draw attention uh, to the things that you are talking about um and um that that history is something to be proud of because i think it is not just a history that contributes to the emancipation of people of African descent in this country, but really uh, for American democracy as a whole. You know, uh, I write in my book that that has been the black man's burden, and I use those terms deliberately because European imperialists always called 
you know, annexing uh, and including slavery and imperialism. They called it the, the white man's burden, as if it was Europe's burden to civilize, quote, unquote, the rest of the world. Uh, but I think it's really been the black man's burden to really um, address these problems, to extend the, the boundaries of democracy and of human rights uh, all throughout the world, and it's particularly within uh, the United States. Uh, and I think that modern-day activists and those people who are concerned about these issues uh, today can really find some inspiration uh, from that long history uh, of resistance, uh, that long and very proud history uh, of the black radical tradition, uh, because I think uh, that's the only way to to confront evils today. And I write about this a bit in in, a, in an article that I wrote for the Boston Review um, that was called, I think, Race, Capitalism, and Power. The, the issue was quite popular, so they ended up issuing it as a book. Uh, and I have a small essay on that, on uh, this sort of long tradition of black, uh, black radicalism. You could call it abolition, right? Or what Angela Davis called abolition democracy. That's what the great, you know, activist and intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois called reconstruction, abolition democracy. That uh, we are looking for a democracy that would get rid of these uh, kind of systemic racial inequalities uh, and really uh, live up to the promise of emancipation. Uh, and and that's something that I think uh, a lot of modern day activists are doing. And that's something that I want to highlight. You know, I, I teach the histories of slavery uh, and, and the long afterlives of slavery, but I also teach the history of abolition and black resistance to it. And I think we really should be mindful uh, of that, um, and I think some of the most, um, you know, the most inspirational moments in American history have had to deal with with abolitionism, the, the civil rights movement, uh, and other ways in which Black people have contested uh, for their freedoms in this country, and and in doing so, really broadened the boundaries of American democracy for everyone. Um, so yes, I would you know end on that note. Uh, by saying that yes, the law, the road is long and hard, but I think we need to to keep traveling on it. Um, and uh, with that, mm -hmm. I want to just thank you for having me today. I, I, I really appreciate your time, as I said. But I do ask for real. one more thing, and that is a little bit of advice as a historian. Uh, you speak about the gag rule in uh, your book. Mm -hmm. I believe it's the counter revolutionary, counter revolution of slavery. Uh, and you speak about the gag rule. We're facing that right now, where we put these bills through and they get caught by a committee chairman who decides whether or not these bills get to even be heard. And in many states, particularly in the South, they've been killing our bills that mm -hmm. way. Uh, what would be the answer to that? What was the answer in history? Anything that you might advise? Yeah. So uh, with the gag rule fight, which I talk about in both my books, also in The Slaves' Cause, what the abolitionists managed to do quite heavily is to to show these gags against abolitionist petitions to Congress um, and also interference in abolitionist mail and literature and things like that and connect it to the cause of civil liberties, right? Um, so they, throughout the 1830s and 40s, they are 
contending against this and saying this is this is an undemocratic thing. And the problem that we have in our country is that many of these former slave states that are today red states and ironically are um, represented by the Republican Party, the, the party of Lincoln and anti-slavery is now the party of the neo-Confederacy. Um, the problem is that these states have such undemocratic rules. Uh, we can see that today with the way they are trying to suppress voting, the way they're trying to, you know, um, uh, gerrymander districts. And I'm quite convinced that they ran through laws. Um, you know, they, they, they're running through laws where every African-American member of the legislature walks out. And you still ram. They're so shameless and they're so racist that nothing shames them. Uh, you could say you're traitors to American democracy and they will proudly wear that badge. Uh, that's the problem with these people today because they have reached uh, a point. So I think the only way is to actually, um, you know, if you want these laws going through, especially in the red states, particularly in the deep south, one would have to really out-organize and, 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 and really over, overthrow those regimes um, just as um, the black codes were overthrown for a short time during Reconstruction, and the only way you can do that is, you know, there's a constitutional, there's a clause in the U.S. Constitution that says every state needs to have a Republican form of government. That's like with a small R, meaning a representative form of government. And I think all these states are in violation of that. Uh, there's a clause in the 14th Amendment that says if you suppress the votes of people, uh, then you will suffer a loss in representation in Congress. None of these mm -hmm. things have been activated against these states, and they ought to be, uh, because they, they get away with murder. And so, yeah, it, it, it is a long fight. I think it is probably more difficult in states that are very revanchist and are very reactionary in their politics. And, uh, you know, those people can't be compromised with. That's what the abolitionists taught us. They ought to be defeated. Thank you for that advice. It mm -hmm. kind of rang very true what I already thought, especially your final words. Uh, we so much appreciate you. Uh, Professor Manisha Sinha, uh, the author of The Counter-Revolution of Slavery and um, also of The Slave's Cause. So pick up those two books as soon as possible. And, Professor, I hope to speak with you again soon. I'd like to consider you an ally in this fight. Am I uh, correct in that assumption? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> All right. Have a blessed day. And we're going to go ahead into a music break. Uh, what we're going to hear now is a little bit from uh, one of our contemporary peers, uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, speaking about the 13th Amendment, uh, along with uh, Christine Amapour. And that'll be followed by another track from Golden Child called Open Enemies. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Yusuf Hassan. And Max Parthas. Our guest today was Professor Manisha Sinha. And we'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Listen, Abolition. May, I, may I just start by reading the relevant part of the, thir the 13th Amendment and get you to, to explain why it has been such a, such a sort of a misnomer. So it says in part, 
neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Um, uh, Khalil Mohammed, I had never understood that phrase and how it perverted, in fact, the, the cause of banning slavery in the United States. Well, the 13th Amendment, as you just read, uh, has almost universally been understood as the legislation that fundamentally ended 250 years of slavery. And therefore, the uh, slavery loophole, which is the clause for punishment as a crime, has never really gotten the amount of scholarly um, or legal uh, attention that it deserved. But in fact, it was, was activated literally overnight, within months of the end of the Civil War, the former Confederate states, as they were going through a process of reconstruction, turned to new criminal statutes in order to re-enslave that population of African Americans. And so it's had incredible utility in the American political economy, uh, both in the South and across the nation. GC, you know, you know. This is not for the cowards. It's not for the Uncle Tom. But if you know what's going on, you'll understand. And now the bill is here My people robbed y'all, took our culture Yet you say forget it Well let somebody rob your ass And you forget that shit You won't forget, you didn't forget And if I can't say shit about slavery Then don't bring up Hitler So that's that shit you taught in slavery Forgive and forget them Well look, I'm something like that Turn and fight back and remember I got a different agenda Look, I'm young, not scared, no fear Don't care, no hope in my blood Don't bring that ass around here I'm here to wake up lions in the jungle and let them know too that if they catch you lurking, bite that ass around here. At the bottoms where they got us in the squalor, they don't give a fuck about you and me. Now that I promise, and I don't know how much more you need to see to recognize that they're your enemies. Stevie Wonder can spot it. <laughs> Only cowards be quiet, cause they scared of these tyrants. Y'all care too much about dying. Well in this war, you might just have to give your life. Cause freedom ain't free, they say it's priceless the same way your life is. Bull Connor, racist cracker, heartless bastard, sticking dogs and hoes in my brother's back when King marched in Selma. And them racist police remained in the system, got rid of Connor, but the whites who rode with Connor remained in the system. Would hate you and tell you, to your face you a nigga. Type to spit on your grave or put a pistol to your temple. And now you wonder why police today keep getting off. Cause shit them racist back then, now they run judicial systems. Catch up, peep game. Ain't changed, didn't love us, then don't love us, so respect us today And now I'm racist and I'm violent, cause abuse I won't take it It's crazy how you turn the victims to the ones people blame But no, I swear that now this is a different day Say we young and fearless, act up and we'll meet you after the We ain't never lived, so look to give our lives, it ain't the thing I would rather die than live my life a ass-kissing slave And at the bottoms where they got us in the squalor They don't give a fuck about you and me, now that I promise And I don't know how much more you need to see To recognize that they're your enemies, Ray Charles the spot How much more you gotta see, huh? <laughs> Only cowards be quiet, cause they scared of these tyrants Y'all care too much about dying Well in this war you might just have to give your life Cause 
freedom ain't free, they see it's priceless the same way your life is. And what happened to fearless black men, my brother's been lacking. I see too many pretty boys who really bout that action. And sisters die, place their lives on the line, not for us in modern days to sit around like shit ain't never happened. You think that you not a slave. The little money that you got to them is pocket change. And you ain't nothing but a privileged house nigga. As long as you hush when masters say not to say a thing, respect for me, you'll never gain. I'm rolling with the soldiers, packed too thick like necks on progress. I ride with only lions, but we kings outside the jungle. Most of us came for nothing, so we know all about the struggle. This fighting shit ain't new to us, came up like this is youngins. We got heart, that's just how we are. Just don't get us started. I don't rock with my uncle Tom, that boy he was hard. It's been time for a revolution, say we just been sleeping. I'm just holding arms with all the brothers who do more than marching. Let's go. At the bottoms where they got us in the squalor, they don't give a fuck about you and me. Now that I promise, and I don't know how much more you need to see to recognize that they're your enemies, but I hope by now you got it. Only cowards be quiet, cause they scared of these cowards. Y'all care too much about dying. Well, in this war, you might just have to give your life, cause freedom ain't free. They say it's priceless the same way your life is. Abolition. 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 That was fire. You just heard Khalil Gibran Muhammad on the 13th Amendment, and that was followed up by Golden Child, Open Enemies. Uh, yeah, that track was fire, Max. Yeah, you That uh, Open Enemies. And as always, it's always great hearing uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad breaking down the 13th Amendment. I believe that was on CNN with uh, Chris, uh, Christiane Am- Amanpour, yeah. correct? Right. It was, yes, on the international program next year. Right. CNN International. Which seems, yeah, CNN International and uh, BBC, they cover a lot of topics like these. It's just in the U.S. where it's censored and they don't cover these topics. Or they revamp it and they pull out, and I'm not going to mention certain names, but uh, the topic changes. You know, they'll take this topic, and by the time it actually goes on air, it become something completely different that looks nothing like the original. Yeah, that was a powerful track. Uh, He is, like I said, representative of the type of mentality that Professor Sinha was uh, describing, uh, the voices of the resistance, uh, those people who really are driving the revolution from the bottom up. Uh, And so I was uh, very happy to find this brother and be able to share his work uh, with our audience today And it's been an amazing hour uh, Speaking with Professor uh, I, I learned a few things uh, As I said I feel like we have an ally In her uh, that would join us Along with For sure. Joy James And Professor Chase And all of the others who uh, we have spoken to Here on air And uh, very likely we'll be talking again Here on Abolition Today As we move forward well, We have time. to yeah, yeah, we have to. I had a whole litany of questions. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad she did touch on a few that I was going to ask, uh, especially dealing with the uh, the Wade Davis manifesto uh, when it came to the Reconstruction. Uh, so she touched on that. She touched on just so many things, and I'm glad you brought up the uh, Lincoln and the Stevens letter. letter. Yeah. Yeah. And, she said know, it was geographical the... restriction. That leaves it with geographical restriction. It wouldn't expand it further. Uh, but I'm I, not 100 percent convinced just yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, could un- I could understand that as an interpretation. 
I believe that I can understand it as an ter- interpretation. I'm not really sure if I totally agree with that because of what came after. And right. usually when something happens and then you look at what happens afterwards, that kind of shows intention as to what they really meant by the restriction because that's what happened. You know, the uh, – right. Go ahead. Oh, I, I oh, was just saying – I, 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 I'm sorry, brother. You go first. No, nah, you got it, Rex. <laughs> uh, um, I, I just I, – I've seen the pattern that uh, unfolds, and – Usually it's about 30 or 40 years in advance they prepare the next extension or evolution of what we call slavery. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, they had convict leasing was already set into place and in practice, so they knew exactly what it was they were going to get in during Reconstruction. Um, and the same thing with uh, convict leasing when that was allegedly abolished in 1928 or 23, depending on who you talk to. Uh, mm-hmm. Before that, they already had set up uh, another uh, I think it was Unicor in 1936 or so. It, 1936. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so they had Unicor and chain gangs. Everything, as they move forward, they set it up in advance, and then they merge into that new evolution of slavery. Like Frederick said, slavery has had many names, and they'll have many more names. And we better keep right. our eyes on what new skin this old snake comes forth in. And we see it now. Right, and in fact, the... Uh... U.S. Supreme Court said exactly what you just said, Max, in Holt versus Sovereign, a case that I mentioned a lot of times, and this was in 1970. They ruled, you know, when Congress submitted the 13th Amendment to the states, it must have been aware of generally accepted convict labor practices and policies, and the court is persuaded that the amendment's exception manifested a congressional intent not to reach such policies and practices. So they already knew what was going on. This wasn't like... uh, something that needed to be interpreted. It was clear convict leasing was already going on. They already had uh, chain gangs going on. They already had, uh, 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 what do you want to call it? Uh, Prison labor. That already existed. Yeah, prison prison labor. But even even a private prison in 1852, that's when San Quentin was created. And it was created to be a private prison. So that also predates you know, the 13th mm-hmm. Amendment. So they knew what was coming down the line. They were already out there experimenting with things. And so if they intended for the 13th Amendment to reach that, as the court said in Holt versus Sarver, they would have written it that way to say, no, this is supposed to reach the prisons too, and it didn't. So that's clear intent. Another clear thing intent. I wanted to mention to her was about I just wanted to talk about felony disenfranchisement since, you know, she touched on voting quite often, but we didn't reach to the point of the felony disenfranchisement. I would yeah, like to have gotten a little bit so of fast. information. Yeah, and, and she's very uh, in-depth in her answers, which I really liked about her, you know, that she didn't, get, didn't give like one or two sentences in her answers, but she gave thorough answers. And you can show that she lives and breathes this. You know, it's clear that she lives and breathes this, and she's spoken everywhere, Max. I look, and I just find in hundreds of just places she's been speaking I know, on this. right? I was looking, too. The only place I haven't seen her speaking at was Sesame Street. She was on everything else. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah, and I was, a little, ki- I, I was a little curious. was a little curious as to how she even got into it, you know, because it's such a off-the-beaten path type of topic, 
and I was just would have been curious as to how she got into that. But, again, we just didn't have time, and I'm hoping we can bring her on again in the future sometime. Uh, just so much, but even what we got out of her was just like a wealth of knowledge. Yes, indeed. indeed. Um, well, there's so much going on, man. One of the things we talked about earlier at the open of the show is what's happening with Jay Prince and his call for a boycott mm-hmm. of the Grammys. I am so down with that. If you know Jay uh, Prince, please tell him to contact Max Parkness because we need to talk. Uh, because right. I see, based on what he wrote uh, about the 13th Amendment, is that he's aware of the 13th Amendment and how it has been used to exploit what is basically slavery practices here in the United States since 1865. What he doesn't seem to be aware of is the fact that we've already been abolishing those exception clauses in multiple states, and we've got a whole bunch more lined up to do exactly the same thing. Uh, So the idea that there is already a fight going on against it and we are making great historic headway is something I think that he might be interested in knowing. Uh, so if you know Jay Prince, sure. contact Max Parthas, and uh, we'll go from there. He'll hit me on Twitter or wherever he wants to hit me, and we can we can do that. I already got like half a dozen people already reaching out to him, but he's a hard brother it's to reach. Insane. You're one of them trying Very to Very hard. You know? Right. Yeah, uh, right. So he's just t- a hard brother what, to reach. Let me read a couple of the t- tweets that he put out in regards to this. He said, how do we bring about change? I'm glad you asked. I recommend that the artists I've mentioned above and more come together in Las Vegas and perform at the same time as the Grammys. This will only be broken by us uniting our powers and bring about change moving forward. See, this is a slave master punish a nigger mentality and act to remind us that no matter how much money we have, we are still niggas in their eyes. So they canceled Kanye and discriminated against Drake this weekend, Nicki Minaj and many others over the years. And he continues to say, the background is important to know because of the mentality of those that control both the Grammys and the prison system in the U.S. Not only did they make slavery lawful by an amendment, they then created the laws by which people would be enslaved. They did that shit back then, and they are still doing it today. So that's directly uh, his quotes of what he's saying. So like I said, he understands, but he doesn't know that the fight is going on as he speaks and we need his help like right now. Man, he really hit it there and yeah, hopefully we can get a hold of him. Or if we don't get him, someone gets him, you know, we have, you know, some people that 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 know how to get the big people. You know, I'm sure uh Sean Sean Darling is listening. I wouldn't be surprised if Sean <laughs> reaches out to us tomorrow and be like, yeah, I've scheduled something for you all to speak to him. I mean, he got the queen mother of Benin. <laughs> you know, who, who just so, got recrowned. Who knows? Like, she just got recrowned again as the queen mother uh, of Benin. Awesome. Yep. So awesome. That's, that's pretty cool. Shout out to queen mother. Um, we have a very holistic view of this uh, system. As slavery abolitionists, mm-hmm. we know that it's all pervasive. There's very little in our systems, policies, and social interactions that aren't influenced by modern legalized slavery. Uh, so we know that ending that constitutionally legal slavery at least gives us the opportunity, as she mentioned, to address the badges and incidents of slavery in courts. Up until this point, 
the Supreme Court has protected slavery as an institution. And as you so eloquently showed us in your research, Yusef, that the court cases of the Supreme Court show that you can't even prosecute the United States unless they allow it through uh, their sovereign immunity. And that the 13th Amendment Mm -hmm. via the Supreme Court was never intended to hold the state responsible, but was to hold the individual responsible for slavery. So if you're a single person or group of people, you can be prosecuted for violating the accept of the 13th Amendment ban on slavery. But if you're a, a city, uh, a county, or a state, you can't be held responsible. Mm-hmm. Yusuf? You just hit it right there. Government entities are supreme. Supremely immune, you know, Um, and they can only you can only sue them if they allow you. That's (laughs) ridiculous hearing something like that. Only if they allow you, right? Isn't that something? Yeah. Uh, I have a a track here that I do want to share with the audience, so they can hear, as always, right out of the horse's mouth. Um, You might Uh not remember these speeches, and I don't mean Yusuf, you Yusuf, but the audience may not remember this speech from Attorney General Eric Holder when he was the Attorney General. But remember, he went to Ferguson, and they did a Department of Justice report. And in his report, he described exactly what was occurring in Ferguson with the police departments and all of their law enforcement and criminal justice systems up to the highest levels, including the freaking governor. And he publicly explained it, describing the police as revenue generators. Something you got to think about for a minute. The Attorney General of the United States describing a police department in the Ferguson community as revenue generators. And we're here to let you know that that wasn't just Ferguson. I did a report after that called America is Ferguson, where state by state, I went and did the same research that the Department of Justice had done to show that this was happening all across the board. And Ferguson was only the focal point at that time. And it's still happening. So let's share that speech from Attorney General Eric Holder. And one more time, we're going to hear from Golden Child. Uh, or actually, no, it's not Golden Child. My bad. Or is it? No, it is. Yeah, it is. It is? Okay. Uh, Golden Child. Born targets. Born targets. Exactly. So this will be our third and final track from Golden Child, Born Targets, following the speech. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, and we're talking about modern-day legalized slavery. I know it's mind-blowing, but it's what we're talking about. Uh, You're here with uh, Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, and we'll be right back after this. Abolition Abolition. Now, as detailed in what I will call our searing report, and it is searing, also released by the Justice Department today, this investigation found a community that was deeply polarized, a community where deep distrust and hostility often characterized interactions between police and area residents, a community where local authorities consistently approached law enforcement not as a means for protecting public safety, but as a way to generate revenue community where both policing and municipal court practices were found to be disproportionately harmful to African-American residents. A community where this harm frequently appears to stem, at least in part, from racial bias, both implicit and explicit. 
and a community where all of these conditions, unlawful practices, and constitutional violations have not only severely undermined the public trust, eroded police legitimacy, and made local residents less safe, but created an intensely charged atmosphere where people feel under assault and under siege by those who are charged to serve and to protect them. Now, of course, violence is never, is never justified. But seen in this context, amid a, a highly toxic environment, defined by mistrust and resentment, stoked by years of bad feelings, and spurred by illegal and misguided practices, it's not difficult to imagine how a single tragic incident set off the city of Ferguson like a powder keg. In a sense, members of the community may not have been responding only to a single isolated confrontation, but also to a pervasive, corrosive, and deeply unfortunate lack of trust, attributable to numerous constitutional violations by their law enforcement officials, including First Amendment abuses, unreasonable searches and seizures, and excessive and dangerous use of force, exacerbated by severely disproportionate use of these tactics against African Americans, and driven by overriding pressure from the city to use law enforcement not as a, a public service, but as a tool for raising revenue. Now, according to, according to our investigation, this emphasis on, on revenue generation through policing has fostered unconstitutional practices or practices that contribute to constitutional violations at nearly every, every level every of Ferguson's law, law enforcement system. Hey, bros, we born targets. They set up the ghetto, they set up our community so that we would end up in prison, that we would kill each other. It's all by design. We born targets, and this shit pissed me off. Should we gonna do better? Hear me out. Look, day. Look, day. Put us in the ghetto, make it hard for us to survive. Every day is a battle, shit, the life we live, survival. School ain't teaching nothing but to hate you and love white folks. So psychologically, they making your brothers your rivals. Babies having babies, can't no baby teach a baby. So the youngins grow up lost, it's by design, they make us doubt hope. That anything will change, so we remain in this train of thought that make us think the hood is for us because we down low. When a man pursues his limits, yeah, he's dangerous. And we're pushed to our limits every day out here. It hurts a man to know that he got children and a wife, but the system make it hard for him to get paid out here, and as a man, we're obligated to make a change out here, but the change we make depends on what's in our brain up here, and a lot of us aren't educated on the way to use our brain to make a living in the non-illegal ways out here, and they know that, so they give us drugs, to sling out here and take this here, cause it ain't safe out here, you'll need these guns, see they supply, but we're the ones locked up, see it's a scheme, it's a plan on us, my brother, wake up, we're born targets, cause if you kill the man, the woman will follow, and losing your woman is losing your nation, so they hate to see her behind us. So they take away fathers, either put them in prison or kill them for nonsense. But we rarely fight back, because we don't believe that we're going to talk. Put a target on your back like that. A target on your back like that. They got a target on your back like that. A target on your back like that. They put a target on your back like that. A target on your back like that. Born I'm trying to get you to think, bro, we was born against ropes. 
And everything is harder to darken your skin tone. Yeah. Don't let them make you think the race is fair. Right. Cause while you running with shackles, they'll take off cause they ain't got no weights on. Right. Get set, go. But no young man is equal opportunity. They go tell that shit to my Uncle Tom and Auntie Tamisha. Cause I'm not a believer, and I'll never believe you. You're an arch deceiver. Hate to see me breathing, living good and eating. And bro, they love to see you hopeless on the corner. They like for you to beg them for their quarter. They like to sex our women, and they love that she don't want us. Cause what a woman want with a slave that can't support her and don't know how to love her. They like that you can't take care of your daughter. They like the hell of our babies gotta grow up without fathers. They like that you ain't got shit to your name and can't maintain. Put us in prison for petty charges. Look, we born targets. But let me calm down. I'm just emotional. I'm hurting, fam. But I'll be fine, cause it's our time now. Soon we gon' start doing better, bro. What they talking about? Saying that we'll be like this forever, man. Fuck they talking about. Look, I'm on a new flow, I'm the new man for the young guys to look up to. Tryna teach you to that hood nigga got no juice. Because we need men and we need kings. We're the backbones of our communities. Either we live smart or die foolish. Put a target on your back, Abolition. So you just heard former Attorney General Eric Holder in the DOJ report on Ferguson revenue generators, and that was followed by Golden Child born targets. Straight from the horse's mouth, Max. Amen. They, they said it straight up so you understand, uh, but the dots need to be connected. Uh, it's, it's not just the police. It's all a vast system that is ever pervasive and all-inclusive and damn near omniscient. <laughs> you know, it's in everything. You can't even go right. get you some french fries without wondering whether or not you got them from Idaho where they're made from planting to bagging uh, by prisoners. Uh, the professor pointed out, you know, desks and chairs, but it's so much more than that. There's over 4,000 companies that use prison labor that we're man, aware of. Man, uh, you man. Know? Right, that we're aware of. And, and that's not counting the investments in for-profit private prisons. I remember some years ago where we discovered that the teachers union collectively had $100 million invested in the construction of for-profit prisons. Uh, their retirements right. and IRAs and, and, and 401ks. The whole city of uh, New York pension yeah. plan had to be removed from it because of that. You exactly. know, uh, Columbia University had to remove its pension plan. You know, right. And Wells Fargo, I believe it was. It was one of the major banks. I believe it was Wells Fargo. Yes. Uh, they had to di- divest as well. Uh, they were have always yeah. been one of the biggest supporters of slavery uh, through insurance and banking, Wells Fargo. Uh, I, I ain't got a lot of love for Wells Fargo right now, right. to be honest with you. Uh, but, yeah, that, you have to think about what he was saying there, how these uh, institutions are being used as extortionists, as kidnappers, as terrorists. Um, as revenue generators. And where have you seen all of this happen before? (laughs) In slavery, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a quote by another historian that says, uh, freedom without rights is useless. Uh, And what he meant is that uh, we all have these rights in the Constitution that every soldier and politician and policeman swears to protect and defend. And yet they don't do that for certain segments of America. So, in certain communities, 
their Fourth Amendment violate, uh, rights are violated habitually with no concern, just as right. the Attorney mm-hmm. General just talked about. Uh, their Sixth Amendment violations are violated habitually. Uh, their Eighth Amendment violates, uh, violates the First Amendment, yeah. everything. And there's nobody defending that. So what good is freedom without rights? Right. I mean, if you swear surely... oath to do... Go ahead. No, I thought you were done. I'm sorry. I, I'm never done, bro. You should know that by now. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, we hear it oftentimes where, you know, someone gets murdered by a police officer and part of the victim blaming is he should have just complied. You know, the officer comes up to him and clearly violates his right and he's just asking, why are you stopping me? You know, because that's where it starts right there. The initial interaction. Yeah, if you don't have probable cause to stop me, then there shouldn't be any type of discussion, period. I should be able to go free on my way. You have the interaction with the person, and then the officer, you know, becomes offended because the person asks them, you know, why are you stopping me? Why are you harassing me? And now the officer wants to place him under arrest. No probable cause to arrest him. But, again, historically, he's been able to abuse his power with no type of uh, fact, you know, no type of uh, uh, punishment for it. And so he'll just go on and violate the person's rights, and the next thing you know, the person is dead, and the masses will say it's the person's fault. But meanwhile, they'll want their own rights to be able to go get haircuts and pedicures, and they started storming Capitol buildings because of that. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just felt like ranting for a second. Matt. Well, you, you're right along the lines of Professor Sina when she was talking about how far gone these deep south red states are. Uh, they are, the way she described it, virtually saying they are beyond approach now. Like, you just got to give up on them or outmaneuver them. Uh, and that's what we managed to do in Alabama, and we're hoping to do in Louisiana as well. But that doesn't mean we're not going to fight. We are going to fight them and uh, use every tool that we can uh, use to get it done. Uh, so that Frederick we can open told us the, the three boxes. Right. The, the, the jury, the ballot, and the bullet. The court cartridge box. Those are the yep. three boxes he told us. That we need access Malcolm to. Told us the, Malcolm told us the ballot or the bullet. Mm-hmm. Same, um, same conversation. One of those exploitative uh, systems that these, or actually two of them, can be found in California, and it's uh, described in the film Do Not Resist, which kind of shows you where we're going in the future if we don't end this now. Uh, one mm-hmm. of those is a Fourth Amendment right that you have is the right to uh, be protected from illegal searches and seizures. And yet, California has incorporated technology that is scanning license plates as they drive around. And they're doing that so that they can see who has warrants, so you can just stop mm-hmm. the warrants. And that's an invasion right there. You should, you're not supposed to be scanning faces and scanning license plates and, and searching for people for your warrant industrial complex. That's, you know, uh, it, it, revenue generators. Uh, and the other thing mm-hmm. is predictive policing. So they have these new programs that have been developed now 
predictive programming, which in the film, the one of the programmers who created it says, we're at a position now where we can determine with 50% accuracy whether your unborn child is going to be a murderer or not. And what do we do with that information? Well, they're using information like that and harassing people who are predicted to commit a, cr- a crime through these racist programs because they're programmed by racists. <laughs> and so they are racist programs. Uh, and it's really turning people's lives upside down. We're, it's like that film that was out with Tom Cruise and them, where you know you Minority Report. Minority Report. You haven't even committed a mm-hmm. crime, and they're already harassing you about something that you have been predicted to do. Uh, so these are violations of our constitutional rights. You're not only digging into our business; you're digging into our future. <laughs> you know, like this right. hasn't happened yet, and you're already giving me credit for it. And what are you talking about, my child being a murderer, 50%? I can do the same thing to you, and I don't need a, a freaking program <laughs> to do it. You right. don't know who's capable exactly. of murder. I remember one high school student asked me when I was teaching class uh, a few months ago in Ohio, uh, how can we be certain that people who are released uh, once we uh, put these lawsuits forward will not go out and commit murder. And I was like, we can't be certain that you won't go out and commit murder. How do you expect us to be certain right. of that? You can't, <laughs> you know? <laughs> was there a response to that? Uh, there was some laughs, uh, but she, she, she understood because, you know me, I'm brutally yeah. honest. <laughs> the truth is we can't. We, we don't know. You can't say somebody's going to be a murderer. It's all based on circumstances. If the family you're pointing at, what happens if they suddenly get a windfall of money and now they're no longer in poverty? That's one of the reasons that you're using, right? Because they're in poverty. Uh, So how does that change your program? You can't predict how these things are going to turn out with any accuracy worth applying, and you should. Let people commit the crime, then hold them accountable, not vice versa. (laughs) Right. Because all efforts of this so-called crime prevention has always been racially biased, historically. We covered that when we did uh, Blame the Presidents, and we covered that history, and everything was just always geared towards the black community. I mean, whenever you hear, you can ask people certain terms, and I've always said this to different groups. I'm like, when you hear the term criminal, what comes to mind? And the vast majority say a black man because that's what they've been programmed to believe is a criminal. It happens in movies. It happens in music. It happens on TV. It happens in books. And they know the numbers of how many people are incarcerated, not how they got there or the you know the systemic racism that led them to being there, but just what they've seen and they've heard. They've been programmed to believe that almost like saying the textbook or the dictionary definition of a criminal is a black male. Yes. Indoctrinated to believe these stereotypes. It's common. We've got about 10 minutes left before we got to start thanking our sponsors. Really? Before, yeah, yeah time, time flew, brother. It flew, man. <laughs> uh, 
I wanted to get in an experience that I had recently before we did that, and I thought you might want to get in a couple pieces of news as well. Uh, the experience sure. that I, I want to talk about is miseducation from the highest levels. We did that, mm-hmm. as I mentioned in the beginning, the polls through Worth Rises to discover that only 22% of Americans even know there's an exception clause uh, to slavery in the Constitution, right? Now, the reason that they don't mm-hmm. know that is because nobody's teaching it. Uh, you know, they gloss over it. And so on the 23rd of March, I went to a, what was called an advanced level class. And the class was on slavery in America, the Constitution to Reconstruction. And it was presented by the National Constitution Center. Now, all of this screams, we're supposed to know what we're talking about. Advanced class. National Constitutional <laughs> Center. Right. So I'm sitting here listening to these people who completely ignored the exception clause of the 13th Amendment as if it didn't exist and had nothing worth talking about, which is exactly what Khalil Gibran Muhammad said in the track we heard, right? That has never been right. uh, researched. So it was an hour, about, well, 40 minutes long, this class uh, that they put on. And they talked often about various clauses during the Reconstruction period. Uh, But the only clause they never mentioned was the 13th Amendment. Like, for us, that is the most important clause. It it helped to develop where we're at today and why we are at such an economic disadvantage because of that 13th Amendment exception clause, and yet the master teachers act like it doesn't even exist. And that blew my mind. So I'll share that if you want to watch teachers uh, misteaching or uh, miseducating their students at the highest level. That's the reason why people don't know today. <laughs> and that's something, you know, Max. <laughs> I'm just looking. You had a you had a busy social media week, man. <laughs> yeah, some man. of the things that were going on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> care to share or you want to go on? Uh, oh, you mean the thing with uh, Roland Martin and, and Yvette Carnell? Or well, even the uh, Lauren Bobart, uh if that's how you pronounce her <laughs> name. I, I was just trolling uh, uh, that fool. You know, they were celebrating the anniversary of the Republican Party, the Party of Freedom and Slavery, as Dr. Uh, Cena explained earlier. And I pointed out to them that now, just like she said earlier, somehow they become the party of slavery under the largest prison population that's ever existed in humanity. Um, they didn't have much to say about that at all. Usually the trolls would jump on, but, you know, when you state facts, it is what it is. So right. That, and that speaking, was one. Go ahead. Yeah, that was that was that was good. And speaking of uh, anniversaries, this past March 16th marked the anniversary of the founding of Freedom's Journal. And for those who are unaware, Freedom's Journal was a black-owned newspaper that was founded in 1827, where free black men of New York City, including uh, executive editors Samuel Cornish and John Russworm, founded Freedom's Journal to counter racist reports in the press and fight for black liberation uh i just wanted to acknowledge that that uh newspaper i think it lasted what was it about two years max a couple years yeah that's a couple years um yeah there was a number of newspapers that came out 
during the magazines during those periods that were the voices of the people and allowed the unheard to be heard, uh, which is what we like to think we are, one of those places where we allow the unheard to be heard uh, and not silence the voices of those directly impacted by this system of slavery and human trafficking that we find ourselves dealing with. Absolutely. And in another episode of Enslavers Enslaving, this uh, this is something we've spoken about several times in the program, but now a civilian review board has found as many or at least 18 gangs exist within the L.A. Sheriff's Department. So that's not really breaking news. We've known this for a long time. It says that these are at least 18 gangs. They are allegedly tied to the deaths of at least 19 people, all of whom were men of color. The report also has a database of names of deputies reportedly involved in these gangs. And you can read through the article. We'll have it on the page. But my question always comes down to, well, one, what are you going to do about it? And two, are you going to open their cases? You know, when you start coming up when you have these gangs, you know they're framing people, are you going to open up the cases of the people who have been convicted based on their lies and planning of evidence, you know, because that's where you, that's how you uh, bring about real change when you start doing something about it besides just coming up with a report and nothing comes about it, Max. Yes, this is true, man. Um, one other piece of news, and then we're going to have to wrap, start wrapping it up, and I do want to tell you about the Bridging the Gap segment for this evening, but one more piece of news I want to share is you should check out the video of Nina Turner on MSNBC in a discussion with Stephanie Rule, and she exposes the hypocrisy of modern Democrats, which I immediately compared to Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail where he talked about the white moderate, because that's exactly what she was doing, Stephanie Rule, telling Nina Turner mm-hmm. about how we need to be more practical and we need to be more patient. And we need to wait for the right time. And I remember where MLK said, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your method of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding, goodwill, is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is more, much more bewildering than outright rejection. Martin Luther King Jr., letter from a Birmingham mm. jail. Uh, wow. History is a synonym, brother. It's the same history is a synonym. differently. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so wow. today... So you know what? I would close it with that. Because what can I say behind that? Well, we we do got to give our shout-outs, but let me do the introduction for the uh, Bridging the Gap tonight, because it is a little special in uh, the fact that I want you to pay attention to what's being said. Yeah, and I was going to give you the last word. I was 
I was going to give you okay. the last word. I'll uh, right. shout out our uh, sponsors, uh, supporters, well, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. Yeah, the I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SAMA Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Coffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash abolition today. The page has all the news, information, and music like you heard this evening on the program. Abolition Today is available on all major podcast platforms. Also remember to join the movement at abolishslavery.us to become part of the solution, the exception, one word, no spaces, to 52886 and follow the prompts. So you can send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause of the 13th Amendment. That's all I have for this week. Once again, thank Professor Manisha Sinha for coming in. Uh, Thank you, Max, uh, for all the great preparation that went into tonight's episode. I'm going to sit back and listen to you introduce the bridge in the gap and enjoy this wonderful track that you've picked out for us. So peace and blessings, everyone. i pass it off to Max. All right, Brother Yusuf. Uh, also, I'd like to echo your appreciation for Professor Manisha Sinha joining us here and sharing her wisdom and just conversing with us today about slavery abolition and the history of it, and also uh, touching on the, past, the present and future. Uh, I picked out today's Bridging the Gap because, of course, it's our final episode during Women's History Month. So uh, Susan B. Anthony, is a, it's going to be a speech that's read from Read Me a Classic uh, by Susan B. Anthony. And during this speech, you'll hear her say that olig- we, we have an oligarchy, but in those oligarchy that we have, an oligarchy of race can be endured, but an oligarchy of sex cannot be endured. And I had to think about that hard uh, and put me in mind of several things immediately. You'll hear it. Please listen closely to what's being said when we play it. Um, but it put me in mind of a couple of questions like, okay, if Negro slavery is okay, right? An oligarchy where the Saxon controls and dominates the, the black man, then what about black women? And to take that even further, I remember when uh, one of these stars put out a tweet that played a song by John Lennon and Yoko Ono called Women Are the Niggers of the World. Uh, you can look that song up. It does exist. Women are the niggers of the world. And I remember one black woman saying on the post, uh, if women are the niggers of the world, then what is the black woman? Crickets. So make sure you listen to that, and you'll understand why Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass had a rift between them. And that's going to be followed by Arrested Development with the song Never Had Your Back featuring Keandra. And I believe Keandra is Speech's daughter. But you'll understand the connection when you hear it. When you hear it. You've been listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parkers and Yusuf Hassan. Join us next Sunday, same time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard, for the next episode. Until then, peace. Abolition. Abolition. During the presidential election of 1872, Susan B. Anthony cast what was considered an illegal vote because she was a woman. 
She was then tried and fined $100, of which she refused to pay. To understand the significance of this fine, one must consider that $100 in 1872 would be roughly $1,900 today in 2015. The following is her speech after her arrest for her illegal act on the issue of women's right to vote. It was a lecture that she performed during a speaking tour of the towns and villages of Monroe and Ontario counties. The title of her lecture was, Is it a crime for a citizen of the United States to vote? Friends and fellow citizens, I stand before you tonight under indictment for the alleged crime of having voted at the last presidential election without having a lawful right to vote. It shall be my work this evening to prove to you that in thus voting, I not only committed no crime, but instead simply exercised my citizens' rights, guaranteed to me and all United States citizens by the National Constitution, beyond the power of any state to deny. The preamble of the Federal Constitution says, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It was we, the people, not we, the white male citizens, nor yet we, the male citizens, but we, the whole people, who formed the Union, and we formed it not to give the blessings of liberty, but to secure them, not to the half of ourselves and the half of our posterity, but to the whole people, women as well as men. And it is a downright mockery to talk to women of their enjoyment of the blessings of liberty, while they are denied the use of the only means of securing them provided by this democratic, Republican government, the ballot. For any state to make sex a qualification that must ever result in the disfranchisement of one entire half of the people is to pass a bill of attainder, or an ex post facto law, and is therefore a violation of the supreme law of the land. By it, the blessings of liberty are forever withheld from women and their female posterity. To them, this government has no just powers derived from the consent of the governed. To them, this government is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It is an odious aristocracy, a hateful oligarchy of sex, the most hateful aristocracy ever established on the face of the globe, an oligarchy of wealth, where the rich govern the poor, an oligarchy of learning, where the educated govern the ignorant, or even an oligarchy of race, where the Saxon rules the African, might be endured. But this oligarchy of sex, which makes father, brothers, husband, sons, the oligarchs over the mother and sisters, the wife and daughters of every household, which ordains all men sovereigns, all women subjects, carries dissension, discord, and rebellion into every home of the nation. Webster, Worcester, and Bouvier all define a citizen to be a person in the United States, entitled to vote and hold office. The only question left to be settled now is, are women persons? And I hardly believe any of our opponents will have the hardihood to say they are not. Being persons, then, Women are citizens, and no state has a right to make any law or to enforce any old law that shall abridge their privileges or immunities. Hence, every discrimination against women in the constitutions and laws of the several states is today null and void, precisely as is everyone against Negroes. 
Susan B. Anthony, up is your worst fear, America. Never had to back, no, no, no. 
curl magic. That's what I told you. Abolition. 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 